It's July 31st, 2012, and welcome to another edition of Bike Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we'll be your geeks in residence for the next hour. First, we'll look at the latest tech news and happenings in Hawaii and beyond, and joining us today is Ed Texera from Chaminade University, as well as Deb Mellum, and they're here to tell us about the upcoming SciBiz Forum. Finally, we will dive into the exemplary state, an ambitious project to monitor our waterways. We'd, of course, love your questions and comments as part of the conversation, so please be ready to call in or tweet. But first, the headline. The 30-meter telescope project hit another milestone last week with the formal signing of a master agreement by the key international agencies involved with building and operating the $1 billion facility slated to be built atop Mauna Kea. The master agreement lays out the framework to develop, design, build, and uh, finance, can commission and operate the Astronomical Observatory, expected to be the largest in the world when it begins scientific operation in the year 2022. The TMT is a unique international collaboration involving universities in the U.S. and astronomical institutions in Canada, Japan, China, and India. It's also secured significant financial backing from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. Henry Yang, chair of the TMT board, said in a statement, We have been working towards this moment for a long time, and this is a special day for astronomy's next-generation observatory, ensuring that the TMT project is on schedule and progressing smoothly. In April, the State Board of Land and Natural Resources granted a permit to the TMT project to build and operate on Mauna Kea. Now the project needs to secure approval from its construction plans from the State Department of Land and Natural Resources. The project must separately negotiate a sublease with the University of Hawaii. Current plans call for preliminary work to begin at the site before the end of the year, with construction to begin in earnest in April of next year. Now, you know, we've been following this project, and of course, uh, we're all interested in all the astronomical uh, viewings that occur on Mauna Kea, and this is, of course, going to be one of the biggest telescopes. And one certainly hopes that Bite Marks Cafe will be here in 2022 to cover that uh, first light. That's a good point. Right, over at uh, the... Over at the TMT, um, Japan also last week affirmed that they're 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 part of the funding for it, which is good. Um, several million dollars there. They're also providing mirror blanks, validation of the technology, some design work. So, uh, and they're also participating in local community events. In fact, I think it was last week that the TMT sponsored uh, education summit on the Big Island. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The University of Hawaii at Manoa last week dedicated a new cyber range, a collection of hardware, software, and networking infrastructure that will be used by students, government agencies, and even private companies for security training and system testing. Dubbed Po'oihe, the Hawaiian word for tip of a spear, the UH cyber range was created in a partnership between UH, the State Department of Defense, and that department's newly formed Office of Homeland Security. The first exercise for the cyber range will be held this weekend. The three-day cyber defense exercise will focus on operational aspects of managing and protecting an existing commercial network. Members of the local information security community are invited to actively participate as members of the attacking red team or the defending blue team, help with judging and scenario development on the white team, or focus on infrastructure with the black team. The cyber range was created through a partnership between UH and the Hawaii National Guard using largely donated equipment. Governor Neil Abercrombie was on hand at the unveiling last week, as was State Adjutant General Darrell Wong, who is one of our featured guests later this hour. Honolulu Police Chief Louis Kealoha and Federal Prosecutor Florence Nakanuni were also in attendance. Governor Abercrombie said that he would specifically ask the legislature to boost funding for cyber 
cybersecurity during the next session. Now, you know, I got a chance to talk to uh, Franklin Jackson, and, and he and Brian Chi up at UH are actually building this cyber range. And I asked uh, Franklin, so what exactly are you guys building? And, and he said, basically, it's like a commercial network, and they have it set up so that there's an attacking team, there's a defending team, and they, they basically go in and see what some of the vulnerabilities are. And he also mentioned that uh, they're building one, uh, a cyber range over at Les Jardins hmm. uh, for the kids to actually practice on. So, you know, this is a serious kind of deployment. Right. I mean, and it's happening in a lot of other places, a lot of other institutions. The scenario for this weekend is basically you're the head of a network for a small company, and not much longer after you learn what your network is and what your hardware is, it, gets, it comes under attack. So mm-hmm. first you have to defend against that attack, and then you have to keep other you know, vital services still operating, including internet access and email and things like that. Well, and that. I think this is this will be a, a good sort of boost to not only sort of computer literacy, but uh, securing, you know, especially for kids getting on and understanding what some of the security issues are. And then, of course, we've been covering stuff like Cyber Patriot and all right. that. And, you know, I think this is going to lend well it, uh, well into that. And even uh, Governor Abercrombie at the event joked about uh, sending some information over to Edward Snowden as oh. well. <laughs> Well, next up, uh, one of Hawaii's top tech leaders has been tapped to lead the University of Hawaii system while a search is conducted for its next uh, president. uh, UH Chief Information Officer David Lasner, a regular guest here on Bite Marks Cafe, was unanimously appointed interim president yesterday by the UH Board of Regents. Lasner has been with the UH for 37 years and was the university's first VP and first director of information technology, as well as its first CIO since uh, um, uh, 2007. Uh, well, um, he will take the helm of the 10-campus uh, system in September. At the special Board of Regents meeting, Lasner said that many people have asked him why he's stepping up. Lasner said, quote, It's an opportunity and, after what UH has done for me, probably an obligation to serve UH and Hawaii. It's as simple as that. In announcing Lassner's selection last week, Board Chair John Holzman said that they have complete confidence that Lassner will be able to continue to advance the Board's agenda and pave the way for the next permanent president of the university. Well, the uh, board expects its presidential search to take about a year. During that time, Lasner will earn an annual salary of $325,000, the same salary paid to David McLean, the last interim president. McLean ended uh, up serving as acting uh, then-interim president for five years. In addition to his UH duties, Lesnar is a board member of nonprofits EDUCAUSE and the Kuali Foundation and serves on the state's Information Technology Steering Committee. He previously chaired the Hawaii Broadband Task Force and remains active in broadband-related planning. And, you know, I've known uh, David for a good number of years. I don't want to count the decades, <laughs> but, you know, he's always been a uh, a very strong advocate uh, for technologies, and, and we've had him on talking about broadband, and you know he was able to get some ARRA funding for the gigabit network for the educational institutions as well as for the state. So, yeah, I mean, he's, he's really kind of moved the whole technology bar up at UH. Right. He's also been principal inve- investigator for the Pacific Disaster Center, for the Maui High Performance mm-hmm. Computing Center, where you uh, worked previously. Uh, I think that, you know, with a lot of the initiatives going on at the state, in the state government, in terms of technology transformation, um, this one year, if it is one year, is uh, hopefully an opportunity for some good collaboration and perhaps some advancement in yeah. the field of tech. And, you know, I'm, I'm really hopeful that um, David will bring more attention to the whole innovation initiative that you know we've been talking about happening over at UH. Absolutely.
Marine biologists have long been alarmed about the increasing prevalence of plastic and other marine debris in our oceans. It's regularly found inside the stomachs of birds and fish. But a new study out of the University of Hawaii at Manoa suggests that plastic particles may make their way into human diets. Over a six-year period, researchers investigated the stomach contents of nearly 600 fish, representing 10 open ocean predatory species, including popular commercial fish like tuna and billfish. Seven of those 10 species were found to have ingested some form of debris. Marine debris has been ingested by seabirds, turtles, small fish, and even sea cucumbers. But this study is the first to address large marine fishes on such a large scale. Opa, or moonfish, is a popular fish in Hawaii and elsewhere. The researchers looked into the stomachs of almost 140 opa and found that 58% of the small-eyed opa and 43% of big-eyed opa had ingested some kind of debris. Lead researcher Anula Choi said in a statement, What was most surprising was that the fish that most frequently ingested debris are all thought to be deeper-water species. Deeper-water fishes may have been coming up close to the surface to ingest this debris, which is an unusual and unexpected behavior. But Choi notes that the debris could also be sinking into deeper waters, perhaps weighed down by algae or encrusted by small sea animals, or even pushed down by wind and water currents. Uh, the researchers note that little is known about the effects of plastic ingestion on fish health, including how long it stays in their stomachs or whether it is um, ultimately dissolved or, dissolved or passed. But some plastic contain, con, uh, contains or absorbs harmful chemicals which may impact the fish or whatever eats them. Now, you know, it is something that I've seen, you know, in terms of whether it's uh, the fish ingesting some of the plastics or even, you know, when I was on Midway, you can see the um, the droppings from the albatross and there's all kinds of plastics in that. Now, the question is, you know, these plastics are getting broken down into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, it's probably not a good idea to eat any of these fish's stomachs, but, you know, is, does it get into the veins? Does it get into the meat? Does it get into the other parts of the fish? Right. Uh, that we might ingest. And this wasn't a specific study on this. They were looking at other previous research into stomach contents in terms of studies of the diets and food chains of fish. And just by going back over that previous data, that's how they came up with some of these, uh, like 58% having ingested debris. Mm-hmm. But uh, certainly there's a lot more that needs to be learned about the impact of that, uh, not just on the other creatures that might ingest these fish, which is a considerably more complicated mm-hmm, research, mm-hmm. but um, specifically its impact on human uh, ingestion, but right. something to be keeping an eye on That's for right. sure. Finally, wanted to share with you a story of how social media was folded into emergency preparedness uh, efforts this week in advance of the arrival of Tropical Storm Flossie. Uh, while the storm dissipated quickly and damage was minimal, state and county officials were joined by a number of other agencies to ensure Hawaii was prepared for the major weather event. For the first time, the State Civil Defense Office activated the Virtual Operations Support Team, or VOST, a largely ad hoc all-volunteer group to expand emergency monitoring and information sharing efforts into the virtual world. A rotating core of VOST members, both in Hawaii and as far away as Texas and Germany, monitored Twitter and other social networks for reports of damage or injury, helped pass on verified information from official sources and watched for rumors, hoaxes, and other misinformation. AFOS is an increasingly common resource in communities around the world, ensuring credible information travels both from and to official sources from the often chaotic and unstructured social web. And as geeks passionate about community, we were glad to have played a small part here in Hawaii. And, you know, we've been kind of uh, organizing the VOS, and as a result of, uh, you know, having interest in this, you know, we got cert 
certified mm-hmm. and ham we got our license. ham radio license. So, you know, and then what we did was we basically put the call out to people and started a Voss um, group on Facebook. And when we got the word that uh, Civil Defense wanted to activate the Voss, we basically put the word out on Facebook and said, hey, you know, we're going to activate. You guys interested in participating? And so we got somebody from like Germany and, you know, Seattle and Denver. Yeah. and Watching so, specific yeah, hashtags. Yeah. Someone reported the door being blown off their house, for example, and things. And uh, again, you want the right information to get up to the people who need to know and the right information to get out to the public because there is a lot of people joking around. I think we tracked more jokes than anything yeah, else. Yeah, there were a lot of jokes. Um, but, you know, the important information uh, is key. In fact, there was a really good story in the Maui News mm-hmm. about uh, a guy who was shocked by his water faucet, and it got to the police dispatcher, and then from the police dispatcher to the media, and then through the media to social media, and by the time it was on Facebook, the guy had gotten struck by lightning out in a field, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. though he was shocked in his kitchen by touching his faucet. Right. So there's clearly reason why you kind of want a credible news network, yeah. uh, even when even in social media, to pass along information. Yeah, so hopefully what we'll do is we'll do a, uh, a post-event debrief with the civil defense and mm-hmm. see uh, what we can improve and what we can uh, continue to you know, perpetuate as a result of uh, activating the boss. And now here in the studio is Deb Mellum and Ed Texera is joining us on the phone, They're both from Chaminade University, and they're here to tell us about the SciBiz Forum. Welcome to the show, Ed and Deb. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity to be here. Thank you, Bert. Thank you for having us on Bike Mars Cafe. Yeah, sure thing. So tell us a little bit. I mean, this is something new to both of us. I mean, we've not heard about the SciBiz Forum. So uh, maybe, Deb, you want to tell us a little bit about what the SciBiz Forum is all about? Sure. Uh, the SciBiz Forum, which will be August 13th at 530 at the Chaminade University Campus Mamiya Theater, uh, is really to open a discussion more about cybersecurity, specifically more for our business community. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that uh, many businesses realize there's a need for cybersecurity and a greater threat for cybercrime, and yet very few know what steps to take or have not had that discussion about what steps to take to protect their information. Yeah. Now, Ed, can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of this event? I know your background in civil defense and emergency preparedness uh, probably factored into it, but how did it lead up to this? Well, thank you. know, when Shamanad uh, asked me to join uh, their program in Homeland Security uh, Leadership, uh, we bounced around some ideas. You know, Sham and I wanted to get out into the community and do more for public awareness. So the idea of uh, doing something in cybersecurity came up. So about a year ago, we began sitting down and planning. And what I asked the university to do was, you know what, Let's. we've done a lot of things in government, particularly when I was in state government with uh, cyber. We've done some uh, major conferences. Uh, we've done some readiness exercises in, in cybersecurity. So this time, you know, I think we should really approach the, businesses commun- the business communities because Large corporations, they can afford the, the IT solutions that you need, but, you know, what about the, the small to medium-sized businesses? They're kind of like out there, I think, fending for themselves, in my view. So that's why the SciBiz theme is there. But nevertheless, we wanted to really get out there and, and try to do something for our business community. And I asked them to consider, you know, really reaching out this time, and rather than getting government experts, because I think government has its own share of problems in cybersecurity, believe me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, let's go after some real experts. Let's go after the people that actually do the hacking and know how to breach data and so forth. So uh, what Deborah has for you is, is the lineup that we've had. And of all the speakers that we've contacted, I think we've picked out two jewels. One, Johnny Long, who's going to come all the way from Uganda. Johnny has written 13 books. Uh, some are bestsellers. Uh, his specialty is no-tech hacking, so he can not only tell you how to breach systems the technical way, but he can also show you 
some practical things that hackers have uh, managed to get that kind of information by looking over your shoulder and all of that and getting into your, into your systems. Now, the other person we chose was Kevin Manson. Now, he comes from the law enforcement side and uh, worked with Homeland Security. He's currently a consultant to the Homeland Security as well as the, doing a lot of work with law enforcement communities nationwide, and he's also internationally known. And he started a portal years ago called CyberCop. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's going to be, I think, a very, very interesting evening. Uh, Deborah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal some of the show by saying, you know, doors will open at Mamiya at uh, 4.30 p.m., and we'll start at 5.30 and uh, finish off about 9 o'clock. And the last hour is dedicated to a question and answer period for the audience. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an event I feel Hawaii can't afford to miss because these speakers are so unique and so valued. Now, uh, now Deb, you know, what is it that you want to, say, achieve as a result of putting this CyBiz Forum out? I mean, what would be the, the best-case scenario of people leaving the forum, and, and you know, what would you want to have them say or do? Well, I think Shamanade, as part of the criminal justice program, um, would like to provide a service to the business community, and we would like people to come to this and learn a little more than what they already know, um, to walk away with um, some greater understanding of the risks that they face in their businesses, but also a better idea of what they can do to protect themselves and ultimately their customers. Mm-hmm. And who's the ideal uh, participant? I mean, uh, Ed mentioned generally small to medium-sized businesses that might not yes. have the resources large businesses have. Certainly maybe a bank or uh, a hospital might have millions of dollars invested in this sort of thing. So uh, what's the ideal profile? Who are you really reaching out to? Well, we're reaching out to small and medium business owners, as Ed mentioned, but also um, to government employees. It could be just about anyone. I mean, we're all at risk if we have are participating in any kind of business here in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we really can't rule out anyone that can benefit from this kind of information. Sure. Now, um, Ed, uh, this is a, a great uh, f- sort of first step. Do you see having this continue on as an annual event, or how frequently do you envision uh, this forum being, being uh, conducted? Thank you, Bert, because that was one of the proposals for Shamanad is, you know, uh, as I told him about what uh, what we've done here so far in Hawaii and Homeland Security, I said, you know, I think it's best uh, to kind of like start small, um, see what we, what we can do. Let's look at the interest level, and then from there you can build upon it. We actually started by looking at a two-day cybersecurity conference that would include not only uh, speakers and presentations from a variety of uh, areas, but also do some training and even allowing people to, or part of that training would, in the two days would be, you know, your business continuity plans mm-hmm. with regard to cyber. And if I may foot, add a footnote to what Deborah said, um, you know, one of our sponsors is the Queens Medical Center. And when I contacted uh, Art Ushijima, the CEO, he, he replied right away saying, yes, Ed, we want to come in as a sponsor. You know, IT and security is one of our top priorities, so... Very, very happy to have uh, Queen's Medical Center and as well as the Hawaiian Telecom that came in as a sponsor. So, and as Deborah said, you know, this can reach out to everybody, anybody that turns on a computer, anybody has IT staff or IT issues uh, and is worried about a breach of their data should come. Sounds good. So, Ed, we want to thank you for uh, joining us and we'll, we'll give uh, Deb a chance to tell us again where, when, and how much this all is going to cost. Thank you, Bert. Aloha to all. Yeah, thanks.
Uh, the Cybers Forum is August 13th at Mamiya Theater in the Chaminade University St. Louis campus. Uh, doors open at 4.30, and the show will start at 5.30. Mm-hmm. And uh, where can someone go to learn more information, to register, for example? For more information and for tickets, you can go to shamanadeu slash Cybiz. That's C-Y-B-I-Z, correct? Correct. Fantastic. Ooh, cool. Thanks, uh, Ed and Deb, for joining us. Thank you very much. And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Major General Daryl Wong and Ken Kanashiro from UH to talk about the exemplary state. What can a cutting-edge network of censors tell us? And how might a exemplary state set an example for other governments? We'd, of course, love your thoughts or questions as part of the conversation as well. So please give us a call, 941-3689, or from the neighbor islands, toll-free at 877-941-3689. And, of course, just like the Hawaii Voss, we're monitoring Twitter at ByteMarksN at Hawaii. This is ByteMarks Cafe. Slack key prodigy Danny Carvalho always brings a fresh take to Hawaiian classics. Catch him in the Atherton studio on Saturday, August 10th with special musical guests John and Jamaica Osorio. Together they will be performing from Danny's third soon-to-be-released CD. It's a special evening of contemporary Hawaiian music, August 10th at 7.30 p.m., tickets at hawaiipublicradio.org or call 955-8821 during business hours. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Terry Tempest-Williams, author of When Women Were Birds. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about voice and silence. Sunday morning at 11. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Major General Daryl Wong and Ken Kanashiro as the State Adjutant General. General Wong oversees the training and readiness of 5,500 soldiers and airmen in the Hawaii National Guard. He is also the director of the State Civil Defense, provides direct support to the Office of Veteran Services, and is the Homeland Security Advisor to the Governor. Ken, meanwhile, is the director of the Center for Conservation Research, Training, and the Project Lead for SIMES, the Center for Island, Maritime, and Extreme Environment Security. And what role do centers play in the exemplary state? We'd love to hear your comments or questions. And, of course, that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. General Wong and Ken, I want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Hello. Hi, Glad to be here. Now, Hello, you know, we, we, had, uh, we had Ken on earlier uh, along with um, Jack Kay and talked a little bit about the, the sensors that Iolani had put out in the Alawai. And uh, as a result of that conversation, uh, Ken was telling me a little bit about the exemplary state. And, and uh, Ken told me, you know, you got to talk to General Wong because this is kind of his vision. So I want to have General Wong, you tell us a little bit about what exactly is the exemplary state. The exemplary state is actually just a concept mm-hmm. of, you know, we live here on an island and it's an island community. And you know, when we talk about the ecology of just nature, you got to talk about all the people all the businesses and how they all interact with one another and how we keep this island community safe. It's, it's a collective uh, a group that does this. It can't be done individually. So when, when I initially talked about this thing, what I did is say in emergency management, mm-hmm. you know, there's an operational need for the, 
for the people of Hawaii, which is, say, flooding. So that's where Kevin Montgomery, uh, which you'll which you'll come on and talk about, that there's sensors that can monitor this. Mm-hmm. So you take an operational need and you throw it to the science science and research community, of which Ken is part of, mm-hmm. and then they develop the science or the the uh, they develop the the whatever science needed to help save the community in certain aspects, mm-hmm. and then then you then you implement that in the community. And then again, you th- to manufacture what you've designed. Then you find a local company to manufacture. So the circle of life here in on, in these islands uh, replicates itself. Where as the companies grow, the university produces more scientists. And then a lot of things that Ken has done is is to me is is pretty outstanding. Where the science that's been developed is taught in the high schools, and then in high schools teach it to the the the, the kids. Uh, I mean the the twelfth grader, twelfth graders teach it to the kindergarten or to the elementary school, and that way, people are constantly learning. And this is science that matters. Science that matters in their community. Mm-hmm. And so, to give you an example, there's a lot of water sensors or river sensors in the Haleiwa area. So that can be all be taught in the schools in those areas, and these kids can learn about science that keeps their community safe. And also, the community takes ownership of these sensors, and then these sensors. In case of a uh, heavy rains, will then alert the community that hey, there's the rivers are starting to get faster. It's starting to uh, to rise, and then they take ownership of their own community mm-hmm. and they either evacuate or save themselves uh, in times of now. Now disaster. you talk about the the sensors. Uh, can you give us a little idea as to what kinds of things the sensors might be actually m- monitoring? Um, Kevin would pro- Kevin Montgomery would probably. Uh, give you a better idea because he's developed these sensors and the, there's other people have put sensors. So they would, they would measure, say, the speed of the water mm-hmm. or the volume of the water that, that, or even the height of the water that, that, that is, uh, is, is coming down these rivers. And based on science and things, you can, you can understand it's, you know, th- when, it's, when it's that fast and that much up high, what's going to happen when it reaches the lowland where everyone is living mm-hmm, so you mm-hmm. can get a, an idea of what's happening way way before the water actually comes mm-hmm. downstream mm-hmm. And, and creates a problem. Now, think, uh, uh, yes, no, go ahead, uh, Ken. We had you on previously again to talk about that uh, fantastic uh, project with the students at Iolani and the Alawai. Uh, maybe you could give us maybe a quick update on how that's going. But I think uh, more directly, how that's actually a smaller piece in the bigger picture. What, I, what I'd like to know is that where does the exemplary part of the exemplary state come in? Yeah. The thing that got me really excited about General Wong's concept of this exemplary state is how do we engage the broader community, including, uh, but and especially the K-12 community, in helping to collect the kinds of data information that's relevant to the community, but also information that will be uh, important for uh, agencies like the Hawaii National Guard, Civil Defense, you know, the um, Department of Health, uh, and data that can actually help them make more informed decisions in in um, you know handle, handling disaster management, flood mitigation, public health issues, and so on. So the project, uh, the question you asked is the project at Yulani School. This is a project that we started um, with a National Science Foundation project called EPSCore, um, and we engage Iolani School in collecting the kinds of um, water quality data. So they took the uh, quarter-mile length of Manoa Stream that borders their their campus, 
And the AP biology class, uh, about 80-plus students, uh, went out and they, they sampled um, biological, both macro and microbiological, so the fish, the prawns, and so on, also the bacteria and other microbiology, mm-hmm. uh, the physical, uh, chemical, and also the climatological. So we, we had actually had a weather station that's mounted uh, on one of the buildings nearby that stream. And they can start to make some correlation uh, over the four-year period now that they've been doing this in any changes in the weather pattern uh, correlated with changes in the density of a particular fish or prawn or whatever. So, you know, if, if you did this kinds of project for one year or two years, you're not going to get a sense of what's happening due to climate change, for example. But over a 5, 10, 15-year period, you're going to start to see patterns of change. You know, so temperature rise, and then all of a sudden this particular species started to decline and disappear. So, you know, unbelievably, these kinds of information where they've done long-term monitoring of ecosystems have really never been done. Mm-hmm. And so by... Engaging the K to twelve community, you know, you're talking about an army of students, mm. you know, at a particular school that can go out and collect these kinds of data. Um, it, it's it's going to add to the scientific database, and if you get graduate students serve as mentors uh, for the K to twelve kids, uh, you can you can actually have valid scientific data that can contribute to our our knowledge base. Mm-hmm. And General Wong, I imagine the idea is when you have one school or three schools, uh, eventually you can expand that to other communities, as you mentioned, but now also serve as a model for similar situations in other states, maybe other coastal uh, other coastal cities. So what Ken has done is in just in the area that he's worked in is just one area or one community. You know, if you take say in Haleiwa where there is flooding and that's something very important to them, that might not be important to someone in Hawaii Kai where flooding is not as much of a problem. So, you know, it's kind of science that matters in the community that you're at and that people then, again, in, in an island community, they take ownership of the area that they live and they, they learn, they use or leverage technology to better their lives in those communities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, using, you know, using the... The research and development from the university into the high schools and into the great into the great schools. Then you continue building science scientists in the state of Hawaii. Then these scientists take another problem and develop a solution and develop a manufacturing. And then so you see where the island community continues to build itself and makes itself stronger. Mm-hmm. When we talk about an exemplary state. Now, is there, uh, in terms of the, the sensors, is there a security element as well built into, you know, putting these sensors out in waterways? Are they able to also sort of monitor, uh, you know, like the, the passage of ships or other kinds of vehicles? You know, again, if Kevin Montgomery is on the line, he, he would be the person who can respond to that qu- that question. Oh, okay. That's uh, uh, fantastic. Well, great. I think uh, Kevin is actually on the line. Kevin is the uh, chief ex- executive officer of a company called IntelliSense Technology, and he's a senior researcher over at the Center for Innovation in Global Health over at Stanford University. Hey, Kevin, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I also want to point out I'm a proud adjunct faculty member of the University of Hawaii. Oh, well, that's an important uh, that's position. That's a very important credential, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so basically, uh, the, exemplary con- the exemplary state concept is really the idea of government, academia, industry, and the public all working together for the greater good, prosperity, and protection of the state of Hawaii. 
And the key part of that is really the ability to have this integrated online collaboration system that brings together what you've been hearing, which is environment and conservation, disaster management, civil defense, education and research, and security and public health, and business and commerce, all together to be able to share data, visualize, understand what's going on, and coordinate their action. Mm -hmm. So the sorts of data that we're talking about are like information from sensors we've, we've begun talking about, but also like GIS data, information in databases, social media, news, and RSS feeds, and Facebook, and all that kind of stuff, but also satellite imagery, aerial photography. Basically, if you can imagine, all information about the state available in one place to empower better decisions. So the sorts of sensors that uh, we've been talking about, we basically had an insight a few years ago as we looked around and we saw all kinds of different sensors there, water sensors and weather stations and air sensors and, and everything. And in every case, every comp each company was making a sensor and then making a way to transmit it in their own way to, to put it together on the back end. And what we realized is the world would be so much simpler uh, for Ken uh, Kaneshiro and Mike Kido's work if we just built one box that you could plug any kind of sensor into, and it would just automatically form a mesh network and get that data out and put it up onto a website, made it really easy for them to do their job. And now we're basically applying the same thing over to civil defense and other things. Mm -hmm. So what sort of sensors are they? Well, you can imagine having a weather station up Malka at the top of the mountain, and if it starts to detect a heavy rainfall event, then you have water sensors at the top of the mountain and further down that start to look at, is there a flood starting to happen? And if so, the system can even automatically alert people and integrate that information together with lots of other information to determine what's really happening here. And you could use the same sort of system for climate change for all kinds of things. And they don't, uh, I guess, uh, because you said mesh network, they don't need their own AT&T Wi-Fi card or anything up there. If there are enough of them in sequence from the top of Haleakala all the way down to where it can make a, net, a direct network connection, they handle all of that transmission of information by themselves. Exactly. And the other important thing about that is they don't need any power either. So no matter what, even in a disaster, these stations will be up and they will automatically form their mesh and they will get the data out. And then, you know, only hit tr traditional telecom when we when we get down to the final endpoint. We can even get around that by going up through satellite. So no matter what, these stations really can't go down. So you said that they don't require power. That means they probably uh, contain their own sort of battery pack. What's, uh, what's powering the sensors? Because uh, they're probably not just passive sensors, right? No, no way. Um, they're uh, very active sensors, and what we do is we uh, have basically batteries inside that mm -hmm. are recharged by either solar or wind power or water turbines, or we've even done biofuel cells in shady areas, but by far probably 80 to 90 percent of what we do is all just solar power. And again, so no, no connection, no need for traditional telecommunications, cellular, and no power required. So it makes it really easy to deploy these sort of things, even in remote areas. And they no. can transmit up to 10 miles, 10 to 40 miles between, between stations. So we used to have some going up Saddle Road that were transmitting about 24 miles between stations. Hmm. Now, you know, um, Ken was the one that introduced uh, uh, me to you, Kevin, and I want to give uh, Ken a chance to tell us a little bit about uh, how you connected up with Kevin. And I know there's, a, there's sort of a Hawaii connection built into this. So, so Ken, maybe give us a little backstory. Yeah, about um, I guess it was about eight years ago uh, with our EPSCO project mm -hmm. again. Uh, we were we were interested in getting collecting environmental data from the very back reaches of um, uh, the north shore of Kauai, you know, near Mount Waialeale, the wettest spot on Earth, and it takes about four days to hike in there. And so we approached Kevin because he's a NASA engineer. He's used to putting uh, sensors on the astronauts and receiving vital signs from, you know, hundreds of thousands of miles from space. So we asked him, 
we need to collect these kinds of ecosystem health data mm-hmm. from these back valleys. And uh, can you help us? And he said, sure, easy. <laughs> but it wasn't so easy, was it, Kevin? <laughs> <laughs> no, but, the real world's a tough place. Yeah. So anyway, um, we worked together with him. We did a lot of um, <laughs> research and development with the, uh, the sensors and the data transmission that he uh, developed. And I think today we have a very robust system where we can have these kinds of environmental weather stations, you know, water quality sensors in these very remote sites and not have to spend, you know, hundreds of dollars flying in by helicopter or four days of hiking one way to collect these kinds of data. Now, this activity was actually done here. Kevin was here in Hawaii at that time? He he was at Stanford, but uh, we engaged him in this project and he came over, flew over with his team periodically and, and actually went out into the rainforest and stood in the rain and got wet. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, I, you know, he used to be an armchair engineer, but he enjoyed getting out in the field with us and understood the problems that we were faced with as, as ecologists in trying to gather these kinds of data. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he, they actually established this company as a result of the work that we did together, IntelliSense Technology, actually was called Hikino Associates. Um, oh, so and, it started off with a, a Hikino, like a, a Hawaiian name? Yeah, Hikino Associates, uh-huh. and it's, it's incorporated in Hawaii. Yeah, uh, the, the actual Hikino is, in a sense, like people that just feel like, just do it, like we can do it, as right. opposed to Hikiole, which are the people that no can do, no can do. So the idea was, if you just get a bunch of Hikino people together, people uh-huh. that really are passionate about what they do, then you can accomplish anything. Cool. And that uh, was the idea, and that's actually the real name of IntelliSense Technologies behind the scenes. Gotcha. Now, uh, Kevin, you did mention briefly that, you know, we've been talking a lot about sensor data and its applications for education, for security, for emergency preparedness, but you did go further and said, uh, you know, uh, being able to be aware of all kinds of information, including social media and uh, news uh, feeds and things like that. Uh, how How is that interaction even modeled in a system where you're combining that kind of information with uh, water temperature and uh, salinity? That's what's, I think, unique about you know, Collaborate.org and the system that we've made is it really does treat all of those different types of data very, very similarly. So you can start to cross-correlate, for example, what what you know, the satellite image is showing with what the sensor is saying, with what somebody just reported on a tweet with, you know, other information. And it's one of the first systems where you can do that. And right now the, the system has over 2.2 million layers of information from, you know, Google Earth, KML files, and other people's satellite imagery and everybody's sensor data, not just our sensors, but we also tap NOAA's sensors and, you know, a bunch of other tsunami warning sensors and all kinds of other data. The idea being that instead of having these in their own silos, what if we could bring them together and one place and put all that data at your fingertips. Well, so, you know, Bert and I are very passionate about open data. And, you know, one of the key questions I would ask is, this is great that all these sensors are out there, but uh, and other people could perhaps derive information from it if it were available to them. So just as a scenario, we just talked about Hurricane, or sorry, Tropical Storm Flossie, and uh, how the virtual operations support team monitored Twitter for reports of damage. You could essentially do the same thing and say, okay, you have rainfall gauges, and you have uh, a Twitter fire hose, and you see an increase in mentions of the word rain and then increases in the mention of the word uh, flooding. And that can help you correlate and, and, and map things, uh, General? Well, because in general, you know, the, as, as Tropical Storm Flossie came across the state, certain areas are going to be impacted harder than others because of just the topography and where they are in the state. So in general, the media can talk about, you know, how much rain, how much wind, but then when you get down to the eaches where you're living next to a river, and how does that river get impacted by 
two inches of rain or four inches of rain. And, and that's where these sensors can really get down to the inches and, and really help those communities define uh, danger there. You know, that's uh, something that I think uh, um, Kevin brought up real briefly, but we want to delve into a little bit more deeply, which is what exactly is Collaborate.org. So we want to talk a little bit about that. We want to hold that thought. We'll be right back after the short break to continue our conversation with General Wong, uh, Kevin Montgomery, and Ken Kanashiro about creating an exemplary state in Hawaii. What other ways can we tap these many, many layers of information? <coughs> and what other applications might be out there? We'd, of course, love your ideas as well. Questions, too. You can give us a call at 941-3689. Or from the neighbor islands, you can dial 877-941-3689. Or tweet us on Twitter. This is Bite Marks Cafe. One of the staffers asked me if I would consider giving a monthly donation, and I realized that I would be able to give more to the station with a smaller payment over a longer period of time than I would be able to with one large one. And I thought, this is great. I don't have to go into debt. I don't have to pay off a charge card or whatever, and it's affordable, and it's easy, so why not? My name is Carrie Taggart, and I'm proud to be a Lifetime member. They're not exactly flying off the lot, but electric cars are getting popular. One of the things that's driving the market right now is very low-cost battery and electric vehicle leasing. You can get a car for $199 a month. That's just a good deal. I'm Steve Kerwood. We check out why and much more next time on Living on Earth from PRI, Public Radio International. Monday at 4 p.m. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to General Wong, Ken Kaneshiro, and Kevin Montgomery about protecting the state's waterways, but even more importantly, getting data about our environment. And, of course, uh, we were also starting to delve into the topic of Collaborate.org. And, of course, you can give us a call. The number is 941-3689 on Oahu or one eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine from the neighbor islands. Now, uh, Kevin, I know you were sort of. I know you mentioned collaborate.org. I don't. I don't think we had a chance to really talk about what exactly is collaborate.org. Maybe you want to give us a little quick uh, overview of what that is. Well, the, the kind of tagline for collaborate.org is it's a global collaboration platform, worldwide collaboration platform with an online community of people working together. And the idea is that they can share resources and experience and expertise and enthusiasm, and be empowered with advanced technologies like collaboration tools and, as I mentioned, all the world's geospatial data at their fingertips. Mm-hmm. So the idea is to take all of that open data that, that you're, I know you guys are also fans of, and if we could put it at people's fingertips, allow them to visualize it, analyze it, and then share it and work together with other communities of people on certain problems that then they could make better decisions and be much more empowered to have great things happen. Mm-hmm. Now, the example of, uh, let's say, getting the feed from Twitter and, and doing a maybe a, a comprehensive search of all the uh, hashtag Flossie, how would that uh, perhaps enter into Collaborate.org? Would that be something that you do sort of externally and then you copy it and upload it to Collaborate.org? Or does Collaborate.org have tools that you could use to, uh, you know, sort of take, uh, accept that feed coming in from Twitter? Well, actually, while we were on break, I actually just brought up uh, one of our portals in Collaborate.org, the Hawaii Disaster Monitoring Network, and I actually clicked on the Twitter feed and put in bite marks. So right now, if anybody in the islands uh, tweets with uh, 
flight marks, and you have to be sure that you have your geolocation on so that I can see that you're in Hawaii, mm-hmm. then they will pop up on my screen. And I'm also looking at all marine vessels moving around uh, out at sea and flights coming in and out and other information. And I just brought it up, like I said, just during that short break. Ah, I think this is definitely something that the local developers and local techies will want to dive into. So uh, thanks for that primer. Now, General Wong, among we've talked about education, we've talked about uh, perhaps security, but uh, I'm also uh, uh, curious specifically on the security question. Earlier in the show, we talked about the cyber range and how we want more people in the community aware of these issues and have hands-on capability to protect systems better. Um, does that fit into this this picture of uh, this network of sensors and uh, the exemplary state? The cyber range is just one aspect of, of uh, education and, and operations where if you think of a cyber range as like a gymnasium where you bring <clears throat> all these cyber warriors together and they're going to compete against each other. Mm-hmm. So you have a red team and a blue team. Uh, to understand how to defend, you also almost have to be practice how you're going to be attacked. So, mm-hmm. you know, all of us can sit in a classroom and, and, and take a test, but we won't know how what good we are until someone really challenges us. And in, in the world of cyber, it's not only academia. You have to actually be challenged and, and see how these attacks are. And these virtual ranges allow for that. So it's one aspect of to secure the state away for cyber attacks you need to develop these cyber type people. And the range is just one aspect of continuing their education beyond uh, beyond just college. You know, and we, we did a, a brief news uh, item, uh, you know, really about the deployment of the cyber range and the exercise that they're going to be doing uh, this weekend. And I, I talked to a fellow uh, by the name of uh, Franklin Jackson. And uh, I invited Franklin to give us a call and, and maybe have an opportunity to tell us directly, personally, what exactly the cyber range is, is there to do. And, and Franklin is on the line, and I uh, want to welcome you to Bite Marks Cafe. Yeah, hi, this is Franklin. Yeah, thanks for joining us. <laughs> yeah, um, so the cyber ranges themselves, a lot like what General Wong says, it, it is a gymnasium. It's, it's to exercise your brains. Uh, what we do is try to uh, bring uh, the public, the private, and the educational sectors together to uh, really learn because each, each one treats themselves as an individual pod. And until we start collaborating and bringing that data together, we'll really know what attacks are out there and how to defend ourselves. But more so towards the range, um, we, uh, General Long touched on a, a bit of it. You know, we have a blue team, which is the defending team. We have a red team, which is attackers. But we also have the executive boards, and we have, uh, we have customers that call in. Um, so, you know, we start getting into the orange teams and the gold teams and uh, really bring a collaboration mesh that is just like a regular company. And so what we've done is we've built out, uh, we've built out this as, a, as a, an entire system. Uh, like if you were in uh, Hawaiian Telecom, it would it would uh, be an example of their network. And then what we would do is we'd set our red team ahead and uh, and we'd let them attack your system. And then we'd bring in defenders to try to de- not only defend uh, against the attackers, but to uh, to harden the network itself. Um, some of the things that have come out of this is, uh, and which I've recently been working on with my partners in the UK, is uh, we're we're donating a cyber range to Le Jardin. And mm-hmm. what we plan to do is uh, uh, bolt on a, uh, a privacy module. And in that module, we'll help kids learn how to uh, deal with cyberbullying in Second Life so that hmm. they can make their avatar and really have that uh, kind of extension of themselves to help educate themselves on what cyberbullying is and then how to defend themselves against that. And then hopefully they'll be able to bring that to their own community and uh, come back home with it. 
That sounds great. And uh, I, I hope you let us know when you have that up and running for uh, uh, Second Life because, uh, well, I can speak personally. I like, I'm a fan of Second Life. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, that's, that's, uh, that's pretty cool. So, uh, and this event is happening this weekend, right? You're, um, and then you guys are deploying it over at the Leisure Den. When's the Leisure Den, let's say, infrastructure being set up? Um, I'll be setting that up in December. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. And then it will give me enough time to, uh, to write the new module in privacy for uh, – uh, for the cyberbullying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, um, you know, getting back to sort of the the whole um, uh, exemplary state, uh, General Wong. I mean, h- how do you see this sort of moving along the timeline? I know you've described a number of different elements that will constitute sort of this this uh, exemplary state. Is this something that you you see happening over? So they so decades. Do you see it happening over the the sort of the near term, like one two years uh, from a timeline standpoint? Well, actually, Ken and I in, in, a, in, in a group have just met to, to talk about it and further define it in, in terms where people understand because the, this exemplary state encompasses a lot. I mean, we, we're even working with OHA in their strategic plan in, in defining you know, how we fit into their strategic plan in, in some of the aspects that they have. So, again, it encompasses a lot of different agencies, talking about environment, community, civil defense, Policy, politics, commerce, business. So this is something that is evolving, mm-hmm. and I think the more people we bring in and discuss, people will understand it. Uh, why it's important for the ecology of this state, and we're talking about the economy of the state as well as the safety of the state, as well as the education of the state. Why this collaboration has to happen, and Ken might elaborate more on this education piece because he's really done an outstanding job in it. Yeah, I've actually just submitted a uh, National Science Foundation proposal for a three-year grant to work with four schools to start with. Mm-hmm. Uh, one private school, Yatsiolani, uh, public school, Mililani High Middle School, um, a charter school, West Hawaii Exploratory Academy in Kona, and then one sort of a learning, non-traditional learning community, uh, Waipa Foundation on Kauai. And so the idea is to develop these kinds of research education modules in these four schools, you know, it, it, it spans the sort of socioeconomic range from a high-end public school to a uh, Native Hawaiian community on Kauai. Um, and so that after the three years, we're hoping that we'd be able to, to uh, deploy these same modules statewide mm-hmm. to all of the K-12 schools statewide. And we, we want to be able to engage about 30 graduate students a year. And it probably will take us 10 years to get to reach all, all of the all of the K to twelve schools okay. um, statewide, mm-hmm. but the idea is to use this exemplary state, at least from the education standpoint, as a model for the rest of the nation, mm-hmm. and perhaps for at the global scale as well. Sounds good. You know, we want to thank uh, um, uh, Franklin for for calling in and, and contributing uh, some. Uh, inside details about the uh, cyber range. And, of course, uh, we're talking to General Wong from uh, State Civil Defense and Ken Kanashiro from uh, UH as as well as Kevin Montgomery from IntelliSense. And, of course, if you have a comment or question and are interested in some of the uh, environmental sensors that are being deployed, you can give us a call here. Number is 9413689 or from the neighbor islands at 1877-9413689. I want to welcome Mark from Waialua to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Yes, hello. Hi. Um, I'd just like to uh, put my two cents in about the whole collaboration thing. You know, I worked for Hawaiian Airlines, and we uh, operated throughout the storm, and that would have been impossible 
without the sharing of data. And there were really critical pieces that uh, helped us get insight into whether we should operate or not. Um, we use things like uh, NASA and JPL and our folks out. I, I got to give a, a boy to the folks out at NOAA. They were very helpful in our uh, in our planning sense. Uh, Dead Vein at uh, JPL, and we use uh, some really great tools. And none of those tools would have been worthwhile had we not had the necessary data. And uh, it really helped during this thing. And I uh, really appreciate those folks. Well, that's, that's great. Fantastic. In fact, uh, I was paying attention to your posts on social media about the status of your operations. So, again, you know, the openness and the ability to interact and get the data, in addition to having those frameworks, mm-hmm, I think is mm-hmm. very valuable. We definitely appreciate your, your perspective. No, uh, thanks for calling in, Mark. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. So, yeah, you know, obviously a lot of this uh, data is becoming more and more available, and, and I think uh, it's important that, you know, there is these environments that uh, sort of initiate and, and, and encourage sort of this collaboration. Um, now, Kevin, you're still on the line. Uh, you know, collaborate.org, I mean, are you getting the word out on how it's best used? Uh, was it actually used during the, the civil defense um, uh, efforts for Flossie, or, or how would you perhaps uh, propose it get used uh, in, in future uh, potential emergency situations? Well, we were definitely monitoring all the weather stations. That, that's what's kind of interesting about this is that, that uh, Ken kind of share and his group, they've uh, paid for a bunch of sensors that they use for their environmental work on Kauai and Oahu. And then Oahu, you know, Army group has a bunch of sensors and some of the community college has sensors. And what's really nice about it is when people allow us to share all that data, as mm-hmm. you said, with open data, then we can look across that. And, for example, we don't need necessarily to buy any additional sensor to put over on on the Big Island because, hey, somebody else already has them over there, and they're willing to share that. So during uh, Flossie, we were actually, I had my staff watching all of the uh, all the weather stations that we already had uh, deployed across all of the islands and the water sensors, and we were actually watching the stage uh, at uh, the sensors along the streams at uh, Haleiwa because we were really worried about that. And we could actually see Flossie as it came into the island, see the rainfall event, uh, realize in this case it wasn't as bad as, as I think was feared, and then uh, watch what was going on in the various streams. And uh, I had my guys ready to, to page me, and, and I would have definitely let General Wong know. Um, but that's part of where we're going with this, is to make it so, you know, my goal is to someday have a, a big flat panel screen on, on General Wong's wall, as well as anybody else that would be relevant, mm-hmm. and have them be able to see what's happening in the state right now that, that we need to know about, mm-hmm. and then be able to use that site to be able to collaborate with others when an event happens like that. Well, you know, um, speaking of cross-referencing information, during the lead-up to Flossie, there was also a small earthquake off Oahu, and there was kind of a crossover in terms of people getting excited about two separate events. I can see that. Now, Ken, you talk about the expansion of this education program. What I'm also seeing is uh, perhaps opportunities for technology people, for developers, that if I wanted to design an app that did something with sensors, I don't have to invest in the apps. If there's a way to tap into Iolani sensors or to Haleakala sensors, and build that into uh, maybe a program that I would design to to make money. Right, absolutely. And in fact, uh, you know, it's not been done by the high school yet, but we definitely um, want to engage the high school. I mean, you know, the, the AP biology class at Iolani are very smart kids, and developing these kinds of ac- apps, are, I mean, I heard Jack Kay on uh, the show uh, about a month or two months ago talked about his Iolani kids actually staying up all night long developing these kinds of apps, exactly. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the, the opportunity for developing these kinds of innovative apps for application to, you know, disaster management, for monitoring the environment, 
is is all there. Now, General Wong, you know, um, it's kind of ironic that, or not ironic, but coincidental that we're uh, talking about all this data and leveraging it in, in an event of like a, a emergency, like, and then of course we have uh, Flossie as an example. Um, as you know, ha- having gone through Flossie, having seen all the data that is uh, uh, being used for, you know, let's say decisions, uh, can you comment about the, you know, your overall view of? how it was, um, let's say, are you getting all these raw data feeds? What could be done better so that it could be filtered in such a way that you could be more um, focused on decisions, make decision-making on specific kinds of events? I mean, what, what would you like to see happen with this data so that you can make decisions faster? Well, I think something that Kevin didn't talk about was, you know, right now we can get so much data. There's just so much right. data out there. So it's a matter of getting the smart people that can analyze that data and and build better knowledge of what that data is telling us. Mm-hmm. And then it goes to the decision makers like ourselves for them. And that's why the National Weather Service comes on board and briefs us at certain periods with all the data they know and the knowledge they have of weather systems. Now they can tell us, hey, better decisions are made based on what this is what's happening with Tropical Storm Flossie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's what all of this data can do. Uh, the more we get, the better decisions we can make. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. how it would help us, on, well, only in the aspect of civil defense. But, again, the exemplary state encompasses a lot more than just civil defense. Right, right. You know, this education piece is real important to continue this circle of life here on the, in the Hawaiian Islands mm-hmm. because all our kids are leaving to work elsewhere. So we need to develop manufacturing here to keep them here. Mm-hmm, right. mm-hmm. Now, Ken, um, what's the next milestone for you? And uh, if someone wanted to learn more about these projects, where can <coughs> they go? Next milestone? Um, yeah, again, I, I'm really into the education, the K-12 education especially. And, uh, you know, we, we had an Iolani student when she was still at Iolani who discovered four new species of bacteria. So the opportunity with the biodiversity we have in Hawaii uh, for the K-12 kids making these kinds of very significant scientific discoveries are, are there. Mm-hmm. So that, that's what I'm looking forward to is, is seeing our, our kids make these kinds of very important scientific discovery. You know, as far as uh, more information about exemplary state, uh, General Wong and I were just talking uh, before we came on the show that this is at the very early stages. We only had one meeting uh, with the group uh, just last Thursday and Friday. We don't even have a website at this point mm. yet, although Kevin Montgomery promises that he'll have a portal uh, any day now. Right, well, Kevin? Kevin's on the line, so he'll do that. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll do it tonight. Uh, right now, we have a Hawaii disaster <laughs> monitoring go. network, but I'll create the, the separate uh, you know, Hawaii Exemplary State uh, portal this evening. Okay. Fantastic. Sounds good. So uh, Major General Daryl Wong is the Adjutant General over at the State of Hawaii and uh, for Civil Defense. Kevin Montgomery is the CEO over at IntelliSense. And Ken Kaneshiro is Project Lead for the Exemplary State. Thank you all for joining us today. Aloha. Thank you for having us. Aloha. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll learn about advances in virtual reality. And if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on BiteMarksCafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at BiteMarksCafe.org. Or, of course, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with a song pick of the week. Here's a band called Craft Spells and a song called Party Talk. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Bite Marks Cafe.